Well, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, let's open again to um, the Gospel of Jonah, as I like to say. Uh, chapter 3 this morning, we're going to be looking at the uh, entirety of this chapter, verses 1 uh, through 10. Um, but before we read it, um, I want to draw your attention to how uh, this chapter begins. Um, Jonah is divided into two parts, chapters 1 and 2, chapters 3 and 4. Jonah 1.1 1, 1 begins with um, the phrase that we studied, and the word of the Lord came to Jonah. And chapter 3, verse 1 begins with the exact same phrase, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, except this time it says a second time. And what a beautiful reminder, especially on the outset of a sermon, um, that our God is a God of second chances. Uh, what a beautiful picture uh, of God's perfect patience with Jonah's uh, like us. Um, I can't think of a better note to, to start our passage on this morning. Some pastors have just preached on verse 1 of chapter 3, and appropriately so. Um, it's a great reminder of, of God's goodness. So with that in mind, let's stand uh, for the reading of God's Word. Jonah chapter 3, verse 1 through 10. wonder if we'll get the uh, train in the podcast here. <laughs> then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three, journeys, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he rose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published throughout Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way. God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. This ends re reading of God's word. Thanks be to God. Y'all may be seated. Everyone in the crowd thought these two brothers uh, were fools, and they thought they were crazy. Most uh, inventors in the aviation uh, world were trying to build uh, the first airplane, and by doing so, they were trying to build an airplane that would actually hold someone, um, but with the lightest material that they possibly could. Uh, so they were trying to build an airplane with the least amount of materials, uh, with the least uh, amount of weight. Uh, but the Wright brothers, uh, they were just a little bit different. They thought differently than the rest of, 
um, the aviation world. They didn't think it was a problem of weight. Uh, they, th they thought that flight was a problem of power. So imagine everyone's surprise when the Wright brothers show up to uh, a leatherweight fight, so to speak, uh, with a couple hundred pound uh, steel cast engine in the front of their airplane. Everybody laughed. Everybody mocked. Uh, but they were wrong. They're actually the only ones who actually got their airplane off the ground. They're the only ones who actually made it airborne. And it wasn't because they built the lightest airplane. It's because they built the strongest and the most powerful airplane. I, I like the story because I feel like it's, it's a parable of, of our very lives. Like these, um, like these aviators and these engineers, we try to answer this question, uh, this problem of, of what's wrong with the world? Why is this world broken? Um, why is this world filled with so much chaos and wrongdoing? We tend to approach that problem like these early aviators did. It's, it's a problem of weight. Let's lighten the load. And here's how we've kind of lightened the load. We'll say, you know, just accentuate the positives. Let's not look at the negatives. Let's just focus on the positives, therefore kind of sweeping everything that's negative or bad under the rug. Um, we'll say things like, well, you know, everyone makes mistakes um, and attempts to kind of lighten this burden of, of wrongdoing and brokenness in, in this world, hoping that this will actually get us airborne. Hopefully that this will take us vertically closer uh, to God. Uh, but here's the irony of, of this passage. I mean, just like these brothers who came in with this, you know, large and heavy engine, so too, you know, believers have to experience a certain kind of weight, a certain weightiness if we want to get airborne, if we want to go up so to speak. That's the paradox. That's the irony. To go up, we need weightiness. We need a heaviness uh, to be given to us. Um, and, and to be clear and to be very specific, what, what are we talking about here? Uh, we're talking about the weight of humility, uh, the weight of repentance. Um, that's kind of our theme this morning in this passage is what is true repentance? Here, uh, what, what, what Jonah and what the narrator are, are telling us is that this, this weight of humility, this weight of repentance is what actually uh, will increase our faith and take us uh, to God. Uh, this is what Paul was saying when Paul said, I'm the chief of sinners. Uh, he experienced um, this, this, this weightiness of, of humility and of repentance. And, and imagine, you know, taking that message uh, out into our, our circles, out into our workplaces, out into our city. When the question arises is, is, where did this world go wrong? Imagine saying to anybody who would hear, well, actually, the problem is you. Actually, the problem is me. It's in here. It's inside of us. You start talking in a message like that, you start preaching that message, people will start looking at you like these other aviators looked at the Wright brothers. They'll look at you funny. 
But that's where it comes from. It comes from an understanding that the problem with this world is, is within us. It's on our insides. And the solution is not making ourselves lighter, uh, taking weight off. It, again, here's the irony. The solution is, is, is experience a weightiness, a heaviness that only God can give, this, this weight of humility and repentance. Um, so I want to look at three things uh, this morning uh, as it pertains to uh, repentance. And all of my points are kind of in uh, proposition or preposition, excuse me, form, not proposition, but preposition. Um, the first is this, and you'll see this in your outline. Real repentance is from God. Real repentance is by God. And then lastly, real repentance is to God. So from God, by God, and to God. Well, first, how is repentance from God? When you think about from, think about uh, source, uh, think about an origin. We have uh, ties to citrus farms in our family, and there's a joke that some of our cousins in Florida will, will tell us. They say, if you, want, if you want fruit or citrus that looks good, buy from the West. But if you want fruit or citrus that tastes good, buy from Florida. And then I would add from Texas, because Texas has really good tasting citrus too right? It's a question of, of source and origin. Where do you get the best product? There's one that looks good, and that comes from, comes from out west, but if you want one that's, that's, that's real, um, that, that tastes good, that's genuine, um, get it from the right source. And, and through this, this narrative and through this story, we've got to understand that repentance, true repentance has a source, and it's not us. Uh, this, this, this repentance can't be made uh, within ourselves. No one has an awareness of that. But true repentance comes uh, from God himself. Uh, and notice how, that, how we see that in this passage. Again, this word of the Lord came to Jonah. Jonah was going to be this messenger of, uh, of this, uh, this prophetical utterance to Nineveh. And so um, God, through Jonah, announces uh, this prophecy to the city. So this, this is not, you know, this, this glorious story of, of self-awareness and self-enlightenment on behalf of the Ninevites. No, uh, it's very interrupting. It's very surprising. Jonah comes in and preaches uh, this sermon, this message from God of repentance. And we know it's real repentance from God when it does two things, and this is like two sides of the same coin. So when, I, when you hear these points, couple them together. Uh, real repentance is both devastating and gracious. It's both devastating and gracious. Notice how it's devastating. Verse 4, the second part of Jonah's prophecy, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. This was military language signaling to um, the people and the king of Nineveh, not, o- not only is their livelihood at stake, but their very lives. Um, their city is going to be overthrown by no army, uh, by no plague, but by God Himself in divine judgment. And we don't like these passages. We, we, we get a little uncomfortable and hot under the collar. Uh, and this is what accuses, you know, people of saying, I mean, gosh, the, you know, the God of the Old Testament is so angry and He's so mad. 
Um, but that's what true repentance does. And, you know, construction workers get this. If you've been in engineering, you get this. This makes all kinds of sense to you. Before you build something new, what do you have to do? You have to tear down the old. You have to undo the old. Before mortar comes the sledgehammer, right? And that's what God does to each of us. That's what God does to communities. That's what God does to great cities. As first comes in with the sledgehammer. And what's the target of his sledgehammer? It's us. It's our hard hearts. It's our hearts of stone. It's our pride. I mean, from what we understand, Nineveh at this time in Jonah's writing is, is the capital of the world. They have, they have no reason to fear anyone, any other nation, any other army. They're at the top of the world, so to speak. Apex predators. They have need of nothing. They are the powerful. And sometimes internally we can feel that way spiritually. I'm, why, do I, why do I need forgiveness? Why do I need God? Why do I need mercy or compassion or repentance? The first thing that sledgehammer has to hit is our hearts of pride and our hearts of self-sufficiency. It's devastating in that way. But notice, too, it's also very gracious. It's both. Look at the first part of Jonah's prophecy in verse 4. Before he says Nineveh shall be overthrown, what does he say? In 40 days. He doesn't say as he enters the city today. It's too late. I'm sorry. Just so that you know what's about to happen to you and what's coming. He says, no, 40 days. 40 days of grace. 40 days to consider. 40 days to wrestle. 40 days to do business with, with our internal pride and our struggles and our arrogance. 40 days of kindness. So can you see how, how God's repentance, um, that, that repentance from God is, um, is devastating on the one hand to us. The kingdom of self is heavily defended territory. It's hard to admit fault. It's hard to be humble. It's devastating in that way, but it's also gracious. God gives them time to consider. Notice, too, that repentance from God is also very, very specific. You know, sometimes with apologies, we'll say generalities like, I'm sorry, or uh, the famous uh, mistakes were made, and, and things, certain things were misremembered. Um, that's lip service, <laughs> and that's speaking in generalities. Notice how specific this repentance uh, from God shows itself. Look at the second part of verse 8. And this is not God talking in verse 8. This is now the king of Nineveh. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. There's no vagueness. Um, the king is very specific of what he and what he thinks the city ought to be repenting and turning from. It's not, I'm sorry. It's very specific. We've been violent. We've been cruel. And what's, what's funny here is, is that this holy, warlike nation is now accusing itself of its violence. Can you see the candor and the honesty uh, among Nineveh? That's how you know real repentance is, is from God. It's devastating, but it's also gracious, and it's very specific. 
Um, but repentance is also by God, jumping into the second point here. Now, what's the difference between repentance from God and repentance by God? Think about it this way. Imagine that you were to give a gift, a piece of art, to a friend. On the one hand, that gift is from you, but on the other hand, that gift is by someone else. It's by an artist, right? It's from you, but it's by the artist. In this story, uh, what God is communicating to us through this passage is that repentance is both from God and it's also by God. Not only is He the giver, uh, but He's the producer of true repentance. Um, and if, if, if I could give, you know, one phrase for you to stick into your vocabulary, to write, to circle, and to underline, it's this idea of, of God that He gives you what He requires of you. Have you ever thought about God that way? God is the kind of God who gives you what He requires of you. Now, for some of us, we kind of grew up thinking, this, you know, in our elementary understanding of the gospel that Christianity is, is just simply what God requires of you. We've reduced the gospel to that simple message, is that being a Christian means that there's a lot of things that God has required of me. And a partial truth is never the full truth. It's a half-truth. And I want you to think about it this way. Yes, there's much that God requires of you, but God always provides. He always gives what He requires of you. So if He requires of you repentance, if He requires of you humility, if He requires of you obedience, he, too, is also the one who will give that to you. He's not sitting back going, okay, now you've been told. Let's see what you got. Let's see what you can produce. The ball is now in your court. No, and the God of the Scriptures is one who, who gives you what He requires of you. And I want you to see that in this passage, and especially in the way that um, the Ninevites' repentance is very thorough. Uh, notice how, how, how thorough it is socially. Okay, first in verse 5, it's the people of Nineveh that turn and repent, right? It starts with the people. And then in verse 6, notice uh, who joins in after the people. It's the king himself. So we have everybody from, um, from the top, the king, all the way down to the lowest of the low, uh, engaging in, in, this, in this public repentance. But notice it, it doesn't stop there. Did you pick up on this in verse 8? But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them all call out mightily to God. So it's not only just the king, it's not just the people, but who is engaging in this public repentance together? Even the livestock are participating. So socially, it's thorough. But interpersonally, uh, notice how thorough it is too. Nineveh's repentance doesn't begin and end simply with words of contrition, with words of repentance, although they do say that. Uh, again, the second part of verse 8, let everyone call out mightily to God. So there are words, uh, but there's actions uh, to accompany uh, those words of contrition. In other words, there are physical manifestations 
of inward realities. So don't see what they're doing and their behavior as, as mere uh, outward behavior. See it as an outward manifestation of what's going on inside of them. They're devastated. And they're calling out to the mercy of God. And so what do they do? They put on sackcloth. They sit in ash. Um, that was their cultural way of showing um, signs that they are mourning, that they're grieving. How do we kind of show culturally signs that we are mourning and that we're grieving? For some of us, that's the wearing of black. Um, I've seen people, after dear loved ones have died, they've worn um, a black armband around, uh, around their shirt. Um, we don't do that a lot uh, anymore as a culture. But what we see here is, is that, you know, from, from king to beast, um, from inwardly to outwardly, we have this, this thorough repentance going on. And they're mourning and they're grieving over it. Real changes, real change, real repentance, real contrition over sin changes everything about you and everything about your community, your insides, your outsides, from the highest to the low. And that's how you know it's real repentance by God. Last point, and perhaps the most important of all of them, is that real repentance is to God. It is to God. Again, this, this might be obvious, um, but it's incredibly important. And uh, let me answer this point kind of using street signs as, as an illustration. Uh, sometimes we would assume that, that repentance is like a stop sign right? So our understanding of repentance is, is there something wrong that I am doing, and I need to stop doing it? That's what repentance is, is to cease from a particular action or a particular sin. Um, real repentance does include that, but it's not reduced to that. That in and of itself is not genuine repentance from God, nor is, is repentance like a merge sign, Okay, so not only should I, I stop doing this bad action or this bad thing over here, I need to couple it, I need to tip the scales and, and maybe potentially outweigh it with a bunch of good things or a bunch of good behaviors over here. Sometimes we assume that that's what genuine repentance is, is, is to stop doing these bad things and to do more good things. It's like a merge sign in that way. But this passage tells us different. That's not true in genuine repentance. Real repentance is like a U-turn. It's like a sign that, that signals U-turn. Um, notice how that word turn is used in verses 8 through 10. And as I reread these verses, the emphasis is mine. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way, and from the violence that is in his hands. For who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented. Uh, again, because we don't have a book with illustrations to kind of show us what the focus of a passage is, narrators will use uh, vocabulary, and they'll use it uh, in repetition for us to, to signal something very, very important to us. Uh, the writer of Jonah is a brilliant writer and narrator, so we read this word turn 
uh, a number of times, and that is on purpose. It's, it's to signal to us what the nature of true repentance is. It's a turn. It's a turn from something that we have been doing, a particular behavior for a particular reason, and it's a turning from it unto God. Do you see how that's different from a stop sign and a merge sign? You see how it's more. It's a turning from something, and it's a turning to someone who is God. You know, here we have this mighty nation who needs nothing. And like I've already mentioned, they are the, they are the apex predators in the world at this time. They are the powerful. But what do we have them doing? We have them admitting their powerlessness before God, who has all the power. In this passage, uh, the narrator calls Nineveh a great city. And by great, they mean it takes three days to walk across it. It is so big. It is so large. And what the narrator says is, is with, a, with, a, with a cry from their very heart, they call out mightily, greatly to God, who is rich and kind and mercy. So do you see the object of their repentance? They're turning from their violence. They're turning from their wickedness. They're turning from their evil deeds and not just saying, hey, we'll stop. We're done. We stop. We stop, 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 stop. So you don't do this bad thing to us. They're turning to God, the true power, the truly great one. Uh, what does this mean for, uh, for us? Uh, I want to apply it at, at a couple different levels. Uh, first, it might be, it might be this. Um, Repentance is, in, in our own pedestrian language, it, it's turning <clears throat> from things of this world, good things that God has given us, and it's turning from those things where we're trying to find an answer, and it's turning to God saying, I've, I've, I've gone to these things, I've, I've run to these things over here to answer some of my deepest and my darkest questions about my identity and who I am, and instead of trying to find them in the world and in things you've created, I want to find it in you. Do you see how that's a turn? It's turning from this unto God. Here's a couple practical examples of that. Maybe some of us here feel small, feel insignificant. Uh, maybe feel, and this is, this is a strong word, but feel worthless. And because we feel this way, and we would never admit that to anybody, because uh, to admit that is, is to own it in a way. We would never say that to anybody. Um, but what that's forced us to do on our very insides is we've gone to our schoolwork or we've approached our professions with an urgency and an ardency and with a vigor, not because we, we love our work, because we're, we're trying to, with our work, um, prove to people that we're not worthless, prove to people that we're not small, to prove to people that we aren't who we think we are on our insides. Can any of you resonate with that? What does repentance look like in that situation? Repentance looks like going to God and saying, God, I've been going to my schoolwork. I have been going to my work. I have been going to my parenting. I have been going to my extracurricular activities and my hobbies to secure for myself a sense of my worthiness and to secure my own identity. 
And the problem is, is those things were never built to do that. Work was never meant to provide that for you or to you. But God says, I do. I provide that for you. And think about what the gospel says as it pertains to our identity. Is there any question as to who we are in Christ? We've already hinted at it in the worship service this morning. We're not slaves. We're not indentured servants. What does he call us? What does he call you and me? Gladly and joyfully and without hesitation, he says, you are my son and you are my daughter. In his eye, we are more precious to him than the jewels beneath the earth. We're the apple of his very eye. And that identity, that value, that significance can never be found in our work. It can never be found in our school, in our grades, in our scholarships. That identity and sense of worth can only come to God. So here's what repentance looks like. And friends, please don't miss this. It's saying, God, I've been going to my work and to all of these good things that you've made to try to find an answer that these things cannot answer. I want to come to you. I need to hear that from you again, and I need to believe that in a way that I've never believed it before. Would you say it again? Would you scream it? I know it scholastically, theologically, but I don't feel it. I don't act like I'm the apple of your eye. I don't act like a son. Do you see the turn there? Do you see the turn from trying to find in, in our work and our extracurricular activities our worthiness, our value? I'm trying to answer that question of I, I feel small, I feel worthless, and now turning to God and go, remind me that I'm not small. I'm not worthless. Do you see the turn unto God? That's repentance at its core. Maybe you need comfort. I think about this a lot. I mean, we prayed for the persecuted church this morning. I think about the wars and the injustice going on in, in some third world countries, and maybe you can't finish the article. Maybe you can't finish, you know, the news story. It, it, it just grieves you that much. Or, or maybe the lack of comfort is more local. Maybe there's discord between you and a loved one, between you and a family member. There's conflict. And again, because it's not very manly or it's not very um, confident to say to other people, um, you know, right now I just need comfort. Nobody talks like that anymore. Um, but inwardly, that's exactly what we're feeling. We need to be comforted. And what's great about the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's like, it's like this gem that if you just turn it so slightly and the light hits it differently, you see an entirely different picture, an entirely different image um, the gospel is like this multifaceted jewel. Not only does it answer um, our need or our experience with smallness, it also answers our great need for comfort. And comfort in the here and now, not just comfort in the life to come, but here. So what does repentance look like when we're struggling um, on our insides with this, this great need for comfort? It looks like this. It's, it's sometimes what our, our flesh tells us to do. 
um, is it says, go, go to exercise, go to sex, go to food and drink. There you will find comfort. Now, all of those things are good things because God created them. But when we use them for a purpose that God didn't attend, they will never answer that deep-seated question that we long for and that we need. Those things cannot provide us comfort. All they do is mask our discomfort for a brief moment of time. That's why addictions happen is because we just throw all of those things at it again and again, but they're never designed to bring us that comfort we need. So repentance is turning from those things. It's not just stopping. It's not just trying to outweigh misusing those things with good works. Repentance is turning to God and saying, God, would you be my comfort? Did you know that he is in the business of comfort? Know this too, one of the names of Jesus Christ is man of sorrows. So when you tell him what grieves you about this world and what struggles you have, he's sitting across from the table nodding, not like, yeah, yeah, let's, let's, let's wrap this up. I don't know what you're talking about, but yeah, let's, let's hurry. He's nodding his head because he's been there. We're tempted to say that Christ walks a mile in our shoes, but it's the exact opposite. He, he has experienced a sorrow and a grieving that we will never know, that we will never experience. So that saying that to him, confessing that to him, owning that and saying, I hate the way this world is going. I hate it when people are enslaved. I hate the way that certain people are treated. I hate injustice. Jesus Christ himself is sitting across from me going, I know. I know. Not only is he saying that, but he's also saying this. There's an answer to our, our deep-seated need for comfort. It's this, and he said it in one of his very last sermons before he left the earth. At the end of Luke, he says, do you not remember what I told you and what I preached? What comes first? Before glory, before joy, before peace, what must come before that? Suffering and sorrow. So then we know that as we engage in the suffering and the sorrow of this world, what's going to happen if we endure? Glory will come. Joy will come. Restoration will come. He is going to make all things new. And how do we know that? Because Jesus gave us that perfect illustration in his very own body. He showed us what that glorified body would look like. He wanted us to see it, that though he suffered, and again, he suffered in a way that we will never know, we who are in Christ, he suffered, and then what happened? He was glorified in body and in soul. And he sits glorified at the right hand of the Father. Why? So that when you and I, when we're suffering from the discomfort of this world, we can remember where Jesus' suffering took him. And again, because we are unified with Christ. We are one in Him. What happens to Him happens to us. Where He goes, we go. Though He suffered and was glorified, though we too suffer, we will be glorified. We know how the story ends. Ask God to remind you, Lord, I know how the story ends. Help me to believe it. This sorrow is so deep, and this pain is so real, and my discomfort is, 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 is so unnerving Something's got to outweigh it. 
These things that you've made over here are not going to outweigh it. Only you can. Sit across from him. Go to him. Ask him to answer that question for you. Do you see how that is the true turn of repentance? I'm not going to go to these things for comfort. I want to go to you. Do you feel powerless? Do you feel joyless? Do you feel disrespected? Is there any vice, is there any experience on this earth that the church can endure or experience that God has not answered in His great gospel? The answer to powerlessness is what? Is the limitless power of the Holy Spirit. Do you know that God respects you? God does not endure you. He does not suffer you. Do you know God actually respects you? That is why you are in the neighborhood where you live. That is why you are in the profession where you work. Because he is your, you are his man, you are his woman in that spot at that very hour for that very need. He has respect for you. Even though you may not have the respect of your peers. And when the king of kings respects you, when the king of kings loves you, that's when you can look at other people's disrespect and unlove and go, it doesn't hurt me as much. I don't need it as much. Because I haven't got the king's love. I've got his identity. I've got his favor. When you've got the king's, you need no one else's. Well, let me end with this. Um, the last chapter of Jonah focuses on Jonah. And so we're only going to be you know, hear about Nineveh in, in reference in chapter 4. Uh, so whatever happened to Nineveh? You know, in, in the history of the world, what happened to Nineveh? We know that in the story, um, they experience, you know, a, a, a sincere, a genuine form of repentance. And even in verse 10, it tells us that God relented uh, from the disaster that He was going to bring upon uh, this people. Um, but what happened? What we know from the rest of the scriptures is that this repentance was short-lived. Uh, there's another prophet who was sent to speak to Nineveh uh, after Jonah, and that was the prophet Nahum. And so listen to what he says in chapter 2. Uh, I've selected just a couple verses uh, from this chapter. Again, context being um, that their repentance was short-lived. Uh, they went back into their life of violence and evil and oppression of the world. So here's what the Lord said to, uh, to Nineveh through Nahum. The scatterer has come up against you. So man the ramparts and watch the road and dress for battle and collect all of your strength. For Nineveh is like a pool whose waters run away. Halt, halt, they cry, but none turn back. Behold, I'm against you, declares the Lord of hosts and I will burn your chariots of smoke. There is a kind of repentance um, that is surfacing. Um, that's just words. Um, that does not turn into a life of humility and a life of repentance. And again, the reason why we make confession of sin a weekly practice in our church is because that is to be the life practice of the believer, a life of humility, a life of repentance. And so what we know from Nahum is, is that it was very short-lived, and that judgment eventually uh, came. Um, and, and scholars and archaeologists have, have agreed that nobody can find Nineveh. 
We can find all sorts of other cities. We can find historical relics from ancient civilizations. We can't find it. It is that gone. And on the one hand, that sobers us. But again, real repentance is is devastating, but it's also incredibly gracious at the same time, too. Uh, I, I read this last week. It's Matthew chapter 12. Again, it's where Jesus compares his prophetic ministry to Jonah's ministry in a way that he doesn't compare uh, his work to any other prophet before. And, and notice what he says uh, in verses 38 and following. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now, hone in on verse 41. And and before I read it, no God-fearing Jew would ever say this in a Jewish environment. No one would be so foolish as to say something like this. But Jesus, notice what he says, and he's speaking to the Pharisees, he's speaking to the crowds, the people who have books of the Bible memorized. Jesus says, the men of Nineveh, these people, the men of Nineveh, will rise up at the judgment with this generation, you, Pharisees, you who are calling for a sign, and condemn it. The men of Nineveh will rise up, and they will judge you and condemn you, you who are self-righteous, you who have no humility, you who are so wrapped up in your pride. Do you see what Jesus is saying there? These ancient enemies of the Hebrews and of the Jews, they're going to be on the right side of judgment. There are some who turned. There are some who were saved. It wasn't a complete wash. There were some who made a lifelong practice out of repentance. And just so you know, they're going to be behind me at judgment. They're going to be with me. And not just the Ninevites, this queen from the south, Sheba. All of these rebels, all of these people who experience this this weightiness, this heaviness of humility and repentance, though it was hard and, and though they suffered, they're on the now the right side of glory. They're now on the right side of judgment. It comes, <laughs> that velvet brick, that brick, it comes with uh, velvet wrapped around it. It hurts, it's hard, but there's a softening. Um, there's a grace that comes with it. Um, just to point us to this reminder again, and I'll leave you with this thought, that repentance is not just something we've, we've done. It's something that embodies the life of a believer. That is our practice. We're constantly looking for those things that God is exposing to us so we can turn from them and not just stop from doing them or try to outweigh them with good works so that we might turn unto God and experience a comfort, experience a joy, experience an identity and a love that we cannot find anywhere else on this earth. The life of repentance is, is, is not one of, of absence. It's not the life of, of things without. It's actually quite the opposite. The life of repentance is, is the life of, of fullness experiencing God in ways that we are designed to experience now uh, in this very life. Uh, Let me pray for us.
Our great Father, help us to not just be hearers of your word, but help us to be uh, doers of it. Would you give us this great gift of repentance? And a repentance that is thorough, uh, a repentance um, that is experienced by the highest of us, the lowest of us, on our very insides, that it might give us more of you. Thank you for giving it to us. Uh, Thank you for giving us what we need for life and for godliness. Thank you for being so gracious to us. And we pray and ask all of this in the matchless name of Christ our brother. Amen.